This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alison Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined this week by our content editor, Andrew Dykes, and digital journalist, Ryan Duff. And it has been, indeed, a very busy week, and we'll get on later to the news around North Sea licensing and funding for carbon capture and storage. Some big announcements this week there. But we'll start with a story which has perhaps gone a bit more under a radar due to all the noise around those other two, and that's job cuts at the helicopter company Offshore Helicopter Services in Aberdeen. Most will know it as the new name for Babcock Aviation. Uh, Ryan, you've been taking a look at this for us. Yeah, it was a sort of bit, a bit of a shock on uh, Thursday when, when it came in. Um, Offshore Helicopter Services UK, uh, they made head- headlines earlier in the year after being acquired by uh, Ultimate Aviation, a South African uh, helicopter operator. Uh, They were bought over by CHC in 2021, and there was some complications with the Competition Standards Authority. But now uh, they're in the headlines again for potentially making job cuts and reviewing its, its uh, its equipment load and reviewing how much it needs. They're blaming the the cuts and the review on its equipment down to a plethora of reasons that we we always hear when these type of, this type of news comes around. Um, we've got windfall tax, of course, so you can strike that off your bingo card list. Um, tough, uh, t- uh, tough economic climate, which yeah, that's something we're experiencing across the board. You're seeing that in offshore wind, oil, and gas, just everywhere in the energy sector. You know, prices are rising. And uh, they're also discussing client, uh, client activity levels. You know, they're not getting as much business as they maybe once did. I got in touch with uh, Steve Robertson, uh, the director of Air and Sea Analytics, to see how sort of true that is. How's, how's activity looking uh, for helicopter operators in the North Sea? And he was saying that a lot of operators are still seeing lower activity now than they were in January 2020. So nothing's really bounced back since that COVID pandemic. Uh, so that's, you know, so that seems to be something that's happening across the board, though. It seems to be something that as I dived into this more and more, I was going, oh, geez, like, you know, the state of the, the helicopter operator space in, in the North Sea might not be, it might, might be, uh, this might become a recurring headline, you know, with just everyone seemed to be quite doom and gloom about it, uh, which is, Slightly upsetting, slightly uh, concerning, uh, but it's it's unclear how many jobs offshore helicopter services are looking to cut. They've got bases in Shetland, uh, Aberdeen, as you mentioned, Alistair, and in Elsberg, Denmark. Um, we don't know if these jobs are being cut across all three bases or just one, but when asked, they, they declined to comment, so one could presume that all three bases are probably going to get hit. It's really quite a concerning uh, story, and and as you outlined, Ryan, the the pressures are impacting all of the operators. What we got later earlier this week, we got a letter through a, a letter um, anonymously posted, not a, not an email, uh, old school, uh, by someone who clearly was involved in the, the offshore helicopter industry, uh, and and it said, yeah, it said, recent times have shown some of the highest profits achieved by the oil industry. But this has not been passed on to the providers in form of review of current contracts, you know, despite high inflation um, and, and, you know, things getting adjusted accordingly. Uh, and, that, and, you know, the argument being that if, had, if there had been an adjustment in contracts, that would have ensured there wouldn't be any kind of 
degradation in the service due to these higher inflationary costs that the helicopter companies are feeling. So, I mean, just Ryan, looking at this and looking at the story as you've been writing it, is there any place here, do we think, for the customers, and by that I mean the oil majors, the oil and gas companies, to be supporting the supply chain a bit more in this uh, in this regard? Yeah, I think so. I think the uh, I think what needs to happen, I suppose, uh, if if this is going to become a recurring issue where everyone's going, listen, we're being squeezed quite tight here in terms of you know, how much people are paying for our service. I think the oil and gas companies and the helicopter operators all need to come together and discuss, maybe reevaluate how payment works and how sort of the, sort of the payment scales for for this type of work. Because, you know, Steve outlined quite, quite, it was quite shocking, actually. It was quite a shocking stat for me, but maybe, maybe this is well known and I just hadn't heard it. But only 2% of overall offshore spending from oil and gas companies goes to uh, helicopter operators, which that yeah, it's, it's meant it's mental that only two percent. You know, it's you're it's essentially it's like chartering a private flight, right? That's kind of the idea, and it's it's mental that that's only two percent of the spending for yeah offshore operations. But um, that that poses an interesting point in and of itself, where. Each operator needs to sort of compete to be the cheapest in order to to claim that two percent because that's all that's available. So that reader that you mentioned, the one that sent in the letter, uh, posed quite an interesting point where you know if you're constantly cutting costs, eventually quality drops, right? And there's a lot of safety that goes into offshore flights, and um, and that's that's something that's worth mentioning. I spoke to both Offshore Helicopter Services UK and CHC earlier in the year. And safety is always something that gets brought up more so than when you're speaking to people from other areas in the sector. You know, like um, if if a pilot's away to fly to a platform in the North Sea and they personally don't feel safe doing so, the flight doesn't go ahead. It's not like, oh, well, the, the you know, the readings say that it's possible, so you should do it and you have to. It's very much safety orientated, and if your pilot feels safe doing it, it can happen. If not, it doesn't. Um, but if you're going to keep cutting costs, something's going to give. And that reader did point out that may, uh, maybe these cuts in costs will reduce in a reduce the the safety levels uh, of these firms, uh, in what he described as a race to the bottom to be the cheapest uh, operator of offshore flights. So yeah, I think that's something that's worth considering as well. You know, obviously the headline is, you know, people are losing their jobs and that is important, but almost every bit is important. It's, you know, what what happens with these sort of safety standards if if these companies are being pushed and they are being strained, maybe they don't have the time to, or, or money or resources to put into making sure that their flights are of a standard that they maybe once were. And, you know, we've he- heard of helicopter disasters before and that's, they're always tragic and, you know, it's, it's always, it always hits the sector hard. But is, is that bound to happen more if, if companies can barely make ends meet? You know, it's, it's, I think it's worth, worth mentioning. I think um, it also, you know, from, from covering this whole, uh, as you mentioned, complications, <laughs> the, the corporate transaction that led to, to them taking over, I think it casts a long shadow over that process as well that, you know that this was a sort of larger company taking over a slightly smaller one, who I, th- who I think was exiting the sector because of the headwinds and how difficult it was to remain operating in that sector. 
you, you've then got a kind of new entrant into the sector. I don't think they had done many uh, work in the UK before, Ryan, when they when they entered. You know, they're clearly finding the market really tough. And I think that, again, maybe highlights that this uh, competitions process that we went through over the course of about two years to get here. <laughs> I'd be a little bit annoyed if, I, if after all of that, you know, this company is then looking at potential failures and stuff further on down the line. What, what does that say about that process? Yeah, definitely. I think it's, it's an interesting point to be made because, yeah, CHC, uh, the uh, arrival of Offshore Helicopter Services UK, both with bases in Aberdeen, looked to buy over OHS uh, in 2021 and the Competition Standards Authority Got it got involved and said that that couldn't happen, and that led to the sale to Ultimate Aviation in January of this year. And yeah, I think I remember speaking to someone at the time um, about that sale and about how the the comp- competition standards authority can't get involved if a company goes bust, right? So someone someone was slightly slightly uh, cynical. I can't remember who it was I was speaking to that said. Well, has CHC sold to someone who doesn't have experience up here just to sort of get rid of competition rather than buy it out, which is it's something worth noting now. I think at the time I was kind of like, oh, is this tinfoil hat kind of stuff? And now that I heard this, I'm like, oh, maybe maybe it's got maybe it holds some more. I don't know. Um, Ultimate Aviation have got experience, uh, but just not in the UK. They set up a UK PLC uh, to buy over, uh, buy over offshore helicopter services UK and tail end of 2020 i believe and so yeah i think i think it's something to to consider as well just how how experienced are these new owners in operating in this space and does that have something to do with it? yeah I, th- I think it does cast a really quite long shadow over that process which was criticized really heavily uh, at the time the, the last point i'd maybe make is that you know we're here time and time again with the helicopter operators um when there's it, it, the industry talks about being past boom and bust but certainly you know when 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 cost pressures come in, it does seem to be helicopter contracts uh, and this race to the bottom that comes up time and again whenever there's a downturn. So there's there's something wrong with the process there. Um, and as you say, Ryan, this is one of kind of the most safety critical um, pieces when it comes to the North Sea industry. So it, it is really concerning and really concerning to hear about the kind of the market conditions. But we'll we'll certainly keep an eye on that. As we go forward, um, next we're sticking with the North Sea, moving on to North Sea licensing. As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed. And I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Megawatt Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, North Sea licensing then. So around the same time this week as we had news about the Acorn Track 2 announcement, which Andrew will be talking to us about in more detail later, 
We had news that the government would support hundreds of new North Sea licenses, and energy security and net zero being the arguments, the main arguments for that. And this has been met, as one might expect, with hostility. Um, certain business leaders have been writing to the Prime Minister this week with concerns over net zero pledges, uh, notably the mining billionaire Austin Williams threatening to pull investment out of the UK and go to America. Uh, rather than, uh, I think he said, this cliff edge on fossil fuels uh, reliance. And obviously we've had the deluge of outcry from climate activists. On the flip side of that, uh, many in the, the North Sea kind of oil and gas industry obviously have been welcoming this. And I suppose ultimately if you're on one side of the fence or the other, you're probably just going to get retrenched uh, with this week, this news uh, this week, rather than anybody necessarily changing your mind. There has been so much discourse on the issue, and I'm frankly a little bit frazzled by it. But I think a key point looking at it, which perhaps hasn't been made enough of, is, is how to actually cut demand. You know, the political effort going into the issue of, of new licenses, which by the way, does not mean that new reserves will actually be developed. That energy should be spent on pushing politicians on things like grid improvements, electricity market reform, pushing for technologies to store energy so we can rely more firmly on renewables. In order to just stop oil, you need to actually stop the demand for it. And I don't think the discussion has really captured the fact that we are so reliant on oil and gas in our society. And if we do have that demand, which we do, we're using them all the time, then why wouldn't we produce as much as we can here as clean as possible? I don't think that the discussion has captured the fact that you know we need oil and gas in our lives. And it's it's... It's almost like everyone's denying that's a fact. Um, so that that's kind of where I'm sitting on it. Um, I don't think the messaging from either party has been particularly... Is, is helpful the right word? I mean, I don't think Rishi Sunak... When he says things like max out North Sea production, people just seem to think that means, you know, extract from the North Sea at any cost. I don't think that's what the regulator who's in charge of this is actually intending on doing, but that seems to be the message that's getting across to the public. You know, everything's going to be weighed up against uh, environmental uh, goals. On the flip side of that, I don't think, you know, when we look at labor, for example, who are using this kind of interchangeable language like no new drilling, no new fields, no new exploration, you know, these all mean different things to the industry. Um, but it's kind of being used interchangeably and creating this kind of confusing messaging, um, which means that I, I think that many companies aren't any wiser as to what a potential Labour government means for the future of the North Sea either. So it's it's been an interesting week to watch it all. Uh, I'm keen to hear what you guys have, have made of it. Um, it's been, yeah, it's been a bit of a bit of an odd one. Yeah, I think it's interesting to be part of, obviously, the energy sector and follow these sorts of things week to week. And then to sort of suddenly wake up and find out that there, there's a supposedly this brand new announcement about hundreds of licenses, which we've been covering since the tail end of last year. You know, these this is paperwork. This paperwork that was put into, you know, process under List Trust, I think. Um, and so it, it's hardly a new announcement. But I think, again, yeah, you kind of touched on it there, Alistair. There's a bit of political posturing here, and I think the Conservatives are kind of on a, a bit of a drive to distinguish themselves from Labour. As you say, where where a lot of those distinctions uh, lie, we're still kind of unclear. Is that, you know, support for the hundreds of licenses that we'll get in September, does that mean, you know, there's going to be a 34th, a 35th round? Um, you know, we haven't kind of heard much on that yet. And, and you know, the flip, 
flip side of that is, is Labour saying that they'll allow any licenses that are granted under uh, this current administration. So those hundreds are going to go ahead anyway. They haven't really kind of entrenched their position there. I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of political will and a lot of hot air being expended over things that are kind of already in motion. Um, and so I think it's interesting, yeah, to, to kind of wake up and find another debate about this that kind of I was under the opinion that, and we were still having, of course, I think it's a, it's absolutely vital lifeblood political debate. But, you know, some of these arguments have already been made. And this this is a, you know, the train has left the station on this as far as I was kind of aware. It, it, it does seem that things are just, everyone's kind of getting retrenched and, and recirculating the same kind of uh, arguments. Uh, I think that's right. And, and obviously this comes uh, ahead of potentially a decision on, on Rosebank. And I think we can, and, and indeed, you know, the announcement of those licensing awards by the NSTA, as you mentioned, Andy, you know, and I think we're just going to see this time and time again going around in a circle. Um, and, and you know, hopefully amid all of that, we'll at least get a, a position from Labour on it, if, and that would kind of help clarify things from their perspective, at least. Um, but yeah, no, I, I can't really get past the, the point around demand. You know, we, we, the, there was a lot made this week around where our gas goes and where our oil goes, where it comes from. Um, you know, there, there was a, a news report that was circulated very widely on, on Twitter uh, and, and other platforms, which uh, was certainly helpful in terms of if you look at oil. Um, and it didn't mention, you know, where UK gas goes to in the main. You know, I think we use something like 38% of our domestic gas in the UK last year. I, I don't think that's a point that can just be ignored. And, and, you know, look, oil is exported on the global market. Part of that is to do with the UK's refining capability. It's also, you know, it needs to be noted that if you look where you're sitting now, listener, or wherever you're 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 walking about, chances are you've got some sort of hydrocarbon-based product on you or right next by to you. If we export these products as product A, we're definitely importing them back in as product B or C. I don't think people are really discussing that point enough and you know if we don't destroy demand for oil you're talking about stopping oil fields whilst we still have great demand for this product what you should be doing is try to find ways to cut demand for it and therefore you know that will just stop oil the oil companies aren't extracting this for the sake of it they're doing it because we need it and um, i don't think that's been necessarily captured uh, so far ryan what have you made of this yeah i think my main takeaway uh andy quite, uh, covered very very eloquently i think it's um you know it did feel a little bit like the decision was just oh well our opponents are saying no new oil so we're going to say hundreds of new licenses it did feel a little bit like it was just uh if, if he says this I'll, if he says black i'll say white sort of thing uh, but yeah, it's an interesting point you make on supply and demand. Like even just from an energy standpoint, you know, we we hear time and time again from industry that the cleanest energy, uh, the cleanest hydrocarbons are the ones on our doorstep, right? That's so if we're if we're trying to meet net zero, if we're reducing imports and sort of increasing domestic production, that has a potential to impact our carbon emissions that can reduce. So. So it's, it's an interesting debate. And then when you have to take into account, yeah, the the fact that your phone and your laptop and, you know, so many things in your house are also hydrocarbon based. It, it adds to an already quite complex discussion, right? It's not something that there's a, there's a reason we haven't solved net zero. <laughs> it's because it's not easy to do. You know, I mean, it's it's not something you can do in a week, uh, even even a few years. And that's 
it, it's it's one of these things that obviously global conditions also change. You know, like obviously the invasion of Ukraine had a massive impact on the oil and gas market, and that that political messaging of we need to get to net zero seemed to quickly shift to we need energy security, we need to be producing domestically. And then the messaging came that, well, it's fine because domestic production's cleaner. So there's 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 so many layers to the onion, isn't there? There's so many layers to the the <laughs> the net zero strategy. That's, that's a good way of putting it, yeah. That's a, that's a very good way of putting it, yeah. And I think we'll be peeling that onion for some time to come. Um, but for now, we'll move on to something else completely. Carbon capture and storage with Andrew after this. The cost of polluting is increasingly high for companies covered by emissions trading schemes. New sectors, new regulations and tougher rules will transform the industry in the UK and Europe in the upcoming decades. Navigate the emissions trading market with the support of our experienced team. Virtus Environmental Finance, emissions trading in safe hands. Okay, some big announcements as well this week on carbon capture and storage clusters. Uh, some good news for, well, Northeast Scotland this week, Andrew? Yes, another uh, another recurring story for Energy Voice, but from mighty weights, tiny acorns grow. This is news that the Acorn CCS project in Aberdeenshire has been officially selected as one of the four carbon capture clusters to receive government backing, ending kind of years of uncertainty and waiting. So the funding is being awarded as part of the track two uh, process in the cluster sequencing process. It's a one billion pound uh, government competition. And it was announced, I think, trailed on Sunday and then formally announced on Monday as uh, the prime minister made a trip to the northeast as part of the government's energy week, which we are still in and developments are still happening live. Um, The project based at the St. Fergus gas terminal lost out on the track one funding in 2021. And it was a huge uh, Low, I think, to the developers, to the area. I think they had uh, been very convinced they'd put together a good bid. Uh, and they think the importance of it in, in terms of the wider decarbonization efforts in Scotland, um, you know, that I remember speaking to people at the time um, saying, you know, kind of, there's no other option. So at some point, this kind of has to get uh, support. But I think they felt they were, they were going to lose a lot of time uh, in losing out on that track one process. Um, so they uh, they lost out to Hynet in the northwest and Teesside on the east coast. The Acorn project itself is expected to store around 5 million tonnes of CO2 in its first stage. And the developers have said around 21,000 jobs are expected to be created at the peak. So obviously huge impact on decarbonisation, huge impact on jobs in the northeast. Um, the project is being developed by Storega. They own 30% alongside partners Shell and Harbour Energy, who hold 30% as well, and the remaining 10 held by North Sea Midstream Partners. So it's safe to say, uh, hugely welcomed news in the Northeast. Um, I'm paraphrasing Sir Ian Wood's quote there. He said it was hugely welcome and marked a significant step in ensuring the Northeast retains its status as a globally recognized energy hub. Uh, Grampian, Grampian Chamber of Commerce, also saying it was a critical piece of the jigsaw in reaching net zero. Uh, Shell, obviously partner, uh, thoroughly pleased. Ineos as well. I think it's worth saying it's it's so key to this this wider cluster. You know, I think Grangemouth, big refinery, big chemicals complex, doesn't sort of necessarily have much of a credible plan that doesn't uh, involve carbon capture in some way. And I think that the Acorn was very crucial to their plans for net zero as well. So I spoke to Sterega boss Nick Cooper a few hours after the announcement. He said his team were delighted and relieved, <laughs> something of an understatement. Um, he said 
given the uh, yeah the interim period since this, the track one announcement, he said it was frustrating and dismaying not to get that. Um, he said they were kind of exp- they understood why that was the case at the time. Um, I'm still, you know, I, I think from our perspective, we're still a little bit out as to why it was passed over. There was a lot of um, a lot of explanation that it was a great project and it was put on this reserve list, but I don't know that anyone ever boiled down. There was a lot of uh, conspiracy theories around red wall seats and things like that. Um, I don't know that we ever heard the reason it wasn't picked, but um, that seems moot now that we're we're thoroughly into track two. Um, but yeah, Nick said that you know some of the members of his team had been trying to work on a project like this since two thousand and seven, um, so it had been a really long time coming. Um, that's looking backward. Obviously, looking forward, um, you know, we kind of asking what comes next for them now that they have that confirmation. So they had uh, they had looked for twenty twenty six as their first injection date. Uh, that was during the track one process. I think it's safe to say that is in doubt. Um, Nick said that had the project been sanctioned, he thought that was viable, but they need to kind of sit down and see whether that is achievable now, as clearly time has, has marched on. However, he uh, maintained that the government's 20 to 30 million tons of CO2 per year storage target, that's by 2030, Acorn is expected to be meaningful, meaningfully operational uh, by 2030 and would be a major contributor to that target. So he's still uh, kind of emphasizing the importance of this project within the wider uh, UK goals for CCS. Yeah, uh, well, fantastic news uh, for this neck of the woods, for sure. Uh, long awaited, as, as you say, uh, Andrew. Uh, not to get ahead of ourselves, I know we're just kind of at the precipice of getting this going now, but maybe just to paint a wider picture here, you know, Acorn... The aim is to obviously ship carbon in from overseas, so this would be kind of impacting and benefiting not just the UK but potentially regions like Europe. Um, you know, what have Strega said about that in terms of the potential scalability of this and maybe uh, growing this acorn, uh, as you say, into a, a, a mighty oak? So yeah, the uh, the first stage, obviously, five million tons. I think mainly focused locally. Um, I think that's involved pipelines and local users. Um, there are also plans for a blue hydrogen plant that's in Fergus as well, which we can get onto just shortly. Um, long term, you know, he's kind of not quite the sky's the limit, but that the uh, the reservoirs they have access to and the facilities they have access to. Um, he said, you know, twenty million tons is doable. They have said, you know, they reckon forty million tons um, might be doable in the future. And obviously that does open up a huge uh, resource for yeah import of CO2 from from Europe and to help other sectors decarbonize, potentially also around the UK. Whether we'll see kind of intra-cluster competition further down that line, I don't know. I mean, I, we're, we're still so early in the process. Um, we're, we're yet to, to determine the business models. That's, I think, the next step that they need to sit down with government. Um, Nick said that those discussions had been progressing through this process, so it's not a case that it was stalled in September. Um, but the, the government still needs to make a call on exactly how these uh, uh, CCS business models will work and how they'll be linked to the power sector as well because they're, they're two slightly different uh, business models. But those conversations are, I think he said, well progressed and, and are still happening. Um, but yeah, clearly, you know, a, a project of globally uh, significant scale. Um, he, he also pointed out just that, the you know, the world, I think, is only talking about something like 40 million tons per year of, of CCS storage at the moment, or, or that's kind of you know, in, in a pipeline or, or about to be in operation. So 5 million tons is, is a decent chunk of that, and you know, it'll only hopefully grow from there, into, <laughs> as you say, a mighty oak. Uh, we've got onions and oaks uh, this, on this week's podcast. Um, yeah, and, and, and then, yeah, Andrew, you mentioned, obviously, with, with CCUS, there comes the 
the link potentially to, to blue hydrogen and, and natural gas. What, what do we know about what might be going on with ACORN and on that front? Yeah, so this would be plans to make uh, blue hydrogen from gas, obviously capturing the emissions and storing them to, to have a low carbon fuel uh, at the St. Fergus gas plant. Um, the discussions around that are still live. Again, that, that requires a bit more approval on hydrogen business models and then obviously how that plugs into to CCUS. Um, Nick said that the, the scheme would progress in tandem and probably plug into ACORN CCS once operational. So slightly detached from the, uh, the process that we've, we've covered this week. Um, he said it's probably not going to be one of the first emitters that they, they pull into that 5 million tons um, when they get the, the system online. Um, but, you know, the, the project is still progressing and I think he's, he's still having live conversations around when, it, when they can bring it online. Um, but still very much, yeah, Blue Hydrogen is still very much uh, a part of the plans for the Northeast. Okay, well, thanks for that analysis there, Andrew. And that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, Andy and Ryan. We'll be back next week. And thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.